Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 594 for the 27th of May, 2018. This week, no matter which operating system runs your computer, there are tips and tricks that make tasks easier or faster or less annoying. This week, we'll take a look at some that apply to Windows and the Mac OS. In short circuits, website owners should beware of messages that appear to be warnings from their hosting company. Scammers are trying to steal login credentials, but it's easy to spot a phony. The most dangerous application on your computer continues to be the one that sends and receives email. In spare parts, which you'll find only on the website, a new botnet can control some 5,000 websites and more than half of them are on servers operated by GoDaddy, according to security firm Proofpoint. Serious gamers need to shell out a lot of money for their computers. The specifications for these machines are astounding. If you're not yet ready for self-driving cars, well, you're in the majority. And new European Union privacy rules went into effect on the 25th of May, and they affect the operation of websites outside of Europe. Maybe you own a Mac, or maybe you own a Windows computer. If you do own a computer, there's about a 98% chance that you use one or the other of those operating systems. And no matter how discoverable or user-friendly the developers try to make their operating systems, it is still a good idea to see what features you might have missed. So this week, we'll take a look at both operating systems. The impetus for this report was a question from a friend in California. He noted that opening a document in Microsoft Word sometimes displayed an option to resume work at the location that was active when the document was closed. Is there a way to make that dialogue always appear, he wondered, and to make it hang around long enough to be useful? My recommendation was to ignore the button and memorize a keystroke combination. Shift plus F5 should always take you back to the last place you were in the document as long as you press those keys immediately after the document opens. Tricks like those make any operating system easier to use. So that's what we'll be looking at this week. And we'll start if you have a Windows computer. If you do, you might want to stop the Microsoft Edge browser from opening everything it can by default. Now, okay, Microsoft, I get it. I understand. You say that Edge is the better browser, and you want me to use it for everything the browser can do. But look, guys, I like Firefox, and I like Chrome. Yeah, I know that Edge has some advantages, but I'd like to use Edge only when I explicitly select it, and not for a bunch of non-web functions. If that happens to be your opinion, too, open Settings and type Default in the Find a Setting field. Then select Default App Setting. Find Web Browser in the list, change the selection to your preferred browser. That does part of it. While you're there, you can also set the default applications for email links, 
map links, music files, photo files, and video files. So check to see what's the default value there. Maybe you'll want to change some of those too. But when you're finished, scroll down a bit further and click Choose Default Apps by File Type. Depending on how many file types are on your computer, it may be a while before the dialog box displays anything. Eventually, though, you will see a list of file extensions and default applications that are associated with those extensions. On my computer, the list starts at .001 and ends at .ztr. To eliminate Edge as the default application for various file types, just scroll through the list and change any default applications from Edge to whatever your preferred application is for that type of file. And yes, there should be a way to sort that list by default application. Unfortunately, there is not. Next thing you might want to do would be organize the applications that you use most of the time. The desktop, the taskbar, or the start menu are all places where you can store links to your most frequently used programs. It doesn't matter which one you use, but having a quick way to get to the applications you use frequently is most helpful. If you use the Start menu, tiles can be resized and moved. You can create new groups and pin applications to them. Organizing icons on the desktop is another option, but using icons that are there requires minimizing or moving applications that are open and then double-clicking the icon. I generally use the desktop only for ad hoc files that I'm working on temporarily and for applications that I'm still evaluating. My preference for organizing apps is the taskbar. You can choose large or small icons, place the taskbar at the bottom of the screen, that's the default, or on the left or right side, or at the top. It's also possible to hide or show labels and to increase the taskbar so that it has more than one line of icons. I use small icons without labels, and I set the bar to be two rows tall. That allows me to place about 75 of the applications that I use most often where I can open them with a single click. Another trick I like is putting files in folders where I'll be able to find them a little faster. That's kind of similar to positioning the applications you use most often. You can add your most used files and folders to a selection of the file explorer called Quick Access. The more files and directories you have, the more useful Quick Access is. My primary computer has several hard drives in addition to the one for the operating system, one primarily for data, digital images, and website development, another for websites, graphics, and publishing files, one for media files and application downloads, another for music, a scratch disk that's used by video and audio applications, and one that I've called miscellaneous, which is full of, well, miscellaneous items. I visit some of those directories frequently, so I've added them to the Quick Access section of File Explorer. The directories are on different disk drives, and some of them are several levels deep in the directory structure. And then there are shortcuts. Shortcuts kind of puzzle me as to why more people don't use them more frequently. The mouse, after all, is a clever invention, but it's inefficient for menus. The more you can keep your hands on the keyboard, the faster you'll get things done. Computers crash a lot less than they used to, and I no longer save documents at the end of every new paragraph, but I do save frequently. I have a couple of options. I could take my right hand off the keyboard, 
find the mouse, move the cursor to the top of the window, click the file menu, click save, and then put my right hand back on the keyboard. Or I could just press Control plus the letter S with my left hand. Guess which I do. Both Windows and the Mac OS make it easy for users to keep their hands on the keyboard by providing dozens of keyboard shortcuts. Some of my favorites for Windows, let me start with the three that everybody knows, Control-X, Control-C, and Control-V. X cuts a selected item, C copies it, and V pastes any previously cut or copied item. Several are new and involve the Windows key. Windows key plus tab opens the task view. Windows key plus control plus D allows you to create a new virtual desktop and switch to it. The Windows key plus control plus F4 will close the current virtual desktop. The Windows key and control key together along with the left or right arrow will move you to the next or previous virtual desktop. The Windows key and A opens the action center. Windows key and B opens the notification area. Windows key and C wakes up Cortana, assuming you have enabled Cortana. If not, nothing will happen. The Windows key plus D shows or hides all applications on the desktop. The Windows key plus Alt plus D will display the calendar and time. And I'm going to stop right there. There are more than 150 keyboard shortcuts for Windows 10 computers. Probably nobody needs all of them, but almost everybody can find a few that will make everyday tasks just a little faster and easier. Microsoft has a complete list on its website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The shortcut keys have several options for virtual desktops, so maybe we should talk about those. Linux and Mac OS users have had the ability to create virtual desktops for quite a while. The feature is now available in Windows 10 without a third-party application. If you're the kind of person who uses a computer for dissimilar types of tasks, this could be just what you need. To create a new virtual desktop, just use Task View, that's the Windows key and tab, and click New Desktop. After you've created a desktop, you'll see it listed at the top of the Task View. You can delete a virtual desktop if you no longer need it, but it will retain its definition following a reboot if you don't delete it. When you've set up one or more virtual desktops, you can switch among them via the task view or just press, as I mentioned during the shortcut section, the Windows key plus Control plus the left or right arrow key. There are some tricks to making this work. If you switch to a new virtual desktop and open an application, it will open on that desktop and stay there. The virtual feedback is a little misleading, though. The taskbar icons on the new desktop will appear to be inactive but clicking an icon for an application that is active on another desktop will return you to that desktop. So, for example, if you have Excel open on one desktop and Word open on another, and then you try to open Excel while you're on the desktop with Word, Windows will automatically switch you to the desktop where Excel is already open. Using the task view, you can move an open application from one virtual desktop to another. So if you need Excel to be on the desktop with Word, just move it there. The operation sounds clunky, and it may seem like it would take a lot of time, but it really can save time and reduce clutter once you get used to it. The concept is still a new one for Windows, though, and the developers need to do more work on it before it has the capabilities that you'll find in either Linux 
or the Mac OS. Speaking of the Mac OS, what if you have a Mac OS computer? Well, the first thing you might want to do is adjust the Finder. The Mac OS Finder is exactly like the Windows File Explorer, except that it's completely different. For reasons known only to Apple, a disk drive icon is not on the desktop by default. If you'd like to have a disk drive icon there, open Finder and choose Preferences. On the General tab, make sure that both hard disks and external disks are selected. While you're there, click the Sidebar tab and choose the items that you'd like to see when the sidebar is visible. The Advanced tab has an option to show file name extensions. It is turned off by default. If you routinely share files with Windows users, turning that on can be rather helpful because Windows systems depend on the file extension to identify which application should open it. I also turn on the option to keep folders on top when sorting by name. It just makes sense to me to have all of the folders together rather than having them mixed in with the files. Adding files and folders to the Favorites section at the top of the sidebar serves about the same purpose as adding files to the Quick Access section in the Windows Explorer. To add a file or folder, click and drag it to the Favorites section. When a blue line appears, position that line where you want the file or folder to be and drop it. If you decide later you don't want it to be in the list anymore, just right-click and choose Remove from Sidebar. The status bar, which you'll find at the bottom of the finder, is turned off by default. This deprives you of some useful information about files and folders. The status bar shows the number of files you've selected and their total size, and it also shows the amount of space remaining on the drive. To turn this on, open Finder, choose View, Show Status Bar. You'll find several other options in that menu, so turning them on or off will let you decide whether you want to see them normally or not. Mac users should also make Spotlight their friend. Apple's Spotlight is a search function, but it does a lot more than just find things. To open Spotlight, press Command and the space bar from any application. Spotlight shows a lot. It can show suggestions from the web, contents of iTunes, what's in the App Store, nearby movie showtimes based on your approximate location, lots of other stuff. Areas searched can be modified in system preferences, and in addition to being able to find files on your computer or on the web or elsewhere, Spotlight can also perform basic math functions and even do currency conversions. And maybe your mouse got lost. Large high-resolution screens sometimes make finding the mouse's location a little bit difficult. On Windows machines, users can find the mouse by pressing the Control key. If you ever lose the cursor on a Mac, just shake the mouse, and the mouse cursor will become larger, but just for a moment. It seems to me that there should be a control to set how long the mouse cursor retains its larger size, but I can't find one. A better choice might be to have the mouse change color, or, as with Windows, display some concentric circles. I sometimes have to shake the Mac mouse several times before I'm able to spot where it is on the screen. And here's a feature that I wish Microsoft Windows had. It's not uncommon to have the window you're working in on top of a window that you're using for reference. Then maybe you need to move the background window so that you can read something that the foreground window is covering. Do that and poof, the background window is now active and in front of the window that you really want to work with. Well, the next time you need to do that, 
just remember to press the command key before clicking on the window's border. You'll be able to move it around, but the window won't be given focus and it'll remain behind the window you're working in. How about shortcuts? Mac OS computer users have lots of keyboard shortcuts. The full list is about the same size as what Windows users have, well over 150. So don't try to memorize them all, and I won't talk about them all. Instead, find a few that help with the tasks that you perform frequently. As with Windows, let's start with the three that everybody knows. Command plus the X, C, or V key. X cuts a selected item, C copies it, V pastes a previously cut or copied item. Then there's Command W or Command Option W. Without the Option key, you'll close the current window. Adding the Option key closes all active windows. Command Tab opens an application switcher. Command key plus the tilde key pages through active applications. Command Option Escape. That's roughly equivalent to Control-Alt-Delete on a Windows computer. It opens the Force Quit dialog. And four more that are pretty handy to keep in mind, Command-Shift plus either A, U, D, or H. A opens the Applications folder, U takes you to Utilities, D will display the Desktop folder, and H displays the Home folder. You'll find a full list on Apple's website, and you'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Does the Mac do virtual desktops, you may wonder? Well, yes, it does. In fact, the Mac OS's virtual desktop capabilities are considerably more robust than those found in Windows. But the same usage notes apply. If you switch between dissimilar uses, an extra virtual desktop or two can save you time and reduce clutter. Virtual desktops on the Mac OS are a function of mission control. Get there by pressing F3 on a standard Mac keyboard, or use Control and the up arrow if you have a non-Mac keyboard attached. As with Windows, applications opened on one virtual desktop stay there by default. Unlike Windows, though, the Mac OS doesn't mislead you with a bunch of icons that appear to be inactive. As with Windows, Mac OS users can move an application from one virtual desktop to another. Switching between desktops without going through Mission Control is easy, too. Just use Control plus the left or right arrow key. If you want an application to always be associated with a specific desktop, you can pin it there, but you can also specify that you want an application to be present on all desktops. If you choose that option and you have multiple screens, you'll probably find that the second screen will be assigned as a new desktop. There's considerably more to that feature on the Mac OS, and it's a good one to explore when time is available. In fact, when time's available, it's never wasted if you spend a little time on the Internet looking for tips and tricks that work with your operating system. In short circuits, well, we have to give crooks credit for devising new techniques to fool people. One that I've seen quite a bit recently uses publicly available information from domain registrars in an attempt to convince website owners that there is a problem with their site. You'll receive an email message that appears to come from your hosting company. Bluehost is one of the largest hosting companies, and a lot of their clients are receiving these phony messages. 
The message refers to a domain you recognize, and it's sent to your address. The body of the message addresses you by a name that is publicly accessible via your domain registrar. It then says that your account is in violation of a host policy, or it has exceeded usage limits, or something else. And then it refers you to a poisoned link that includes what they hope you'll see, the Bluehost domain name. But the only domain name that matters is the last one in the string. That's the site that will actually answer when somebody clicks the link. Everything in front of the domain name refers to a subdomain. Everything after the domain name refers to a directory. Most of these messages contain additional contact information at the bottom of the message. It is valid, and it's included to make the message appear to be legitimate. You'll see an example of one of these messages on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Clicking the link will display what looks like a Bluehost login page. Those who actually use it to log in will have their credentials stolen by the crooks, and the crooks will then be able to set up a new subdomain and use it for illegitimate and illegal purposes. The crooks may be clever enough, but the messages are obvious, obvious scams. In the message I display, the target domain is shown in plain text, so it is immediately clear that it does not go to Bluehost, but to some other domain that's been compromised. How to get compromised? Well, probably because the owner of that site fell for a similar scam and handed over the site's login credentials. Another variant will seek to hide the target domain by displaying only text like click here or a partial domain name and then hiding the poisoned link. It's fairly easy to spot those too. Just hover the mouse cursor over the suspect link, right-click the link, right-click it, don't left-click it, right-click it, copy it, and then paste it into a word processor or a text editor and examine the link. And those silly payment dues spammy scams continue unabated too. You'll receive a serious looking message that says your account is about to be canceled unless you hand over some amount of money to renew. The amount of money was 84 bucks in one that I received this week. It implies that this is a domain payment, hinting it's a domain registration, but in fact, it is only an offer to list your website on search engines. These are worthless, even in those rare instances in which the person who receives the money actually does something to earn it. And there's a message in tiny, tiny text at the bottom of the message in light gray. It'll say something like, you've received this message because you elected to receive special notification offers. Well, that is a lie and the remainder of the message is, at best, misleading. The company making the offer is called Who is Above Blue. It is registered to someone in China. These offers sometimes come by mail, sometimes by email, sometimes by phone. Anyone who still has a fax machine probably receives them there, too. Regardless of how they arrive, they are scams if they are not from your domain registrar or your domain host. The current edition of The Atlantic magazine includes an article by Quinn Norton about the persistent and worsening dangers of email. Email is the most common vector for malware, and it has been for years. Until recently, though, we thought email could be safe if certain kinds of safeguards were in place. 
Norton's story recounts a discovery by researchers in Europe, a discovery that reveals two security and encryption protocols we depend on can be defeated by an exploit the researchers have named eFail. It can be used to render OpenPGP and SMIME ineffective. I have worked with OpenPGP, and it is not the kind of protocol that the average users, or even the above-average users, can master. Corporate IT departments use it to protect data during transmission. The same can be said for SMIME. The article is a reminder that email's problems exist because the protocol is from a different, simpler time. When email protocols were developed, ARPANET was a closed system. There were few users, and most of the users had security clearances. The network was secure, so the protocol didn't have to be. Things have changed a bit since then. Norton puts it this way, and I quote, Email's privacy model was always based on courtesy. We wouldn't look at messages crossing the network that weren't for us because that would be rude. It would be even more rude to change them, though some system administrators did regularly insert strange messages or modify messages as pranks or to get their users' attention. Emails from God or Santa Claus were not unheard of. The article describes pretty good privacy, PGP. It was one of the first attempts to create secure encrypted email, but using it is far beyond the capabilities of most users. Norton's article notes that in the mid-1990s, the MIME protocol was invented. Multipurpose Internet mail extensions allowed text-based email to do more. Formatted text, images, attachments, all these were added. To handle all of those features, email clients had to start acting like web browsers. And that is exactly what eFail exploits. And as bad as that is, it's getting worse. Norton's article in The Atlantic is well worth reading. You'll find it on the magazine's website. There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And while you're on the TechBiter Worldwide website, check out Spare Parts. That is, after all, the only place you'll find it. This week, a new botnet can control some 5,000 websites, more than half of them on servers operated by GoDaddy, according to security firm Proofpoint. Serious gamers need to shell out a lot of money for their computers, but the specifications for these machines are astounding. If you're not yet quite ready for a self-driving car, you are in the majority. And new European Union privacy rules went into effect on the 25th of May, and they do affect the operation of websites outside of Europe. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.